All right. Well, for those of you that are uh, guests with us today, or this is your first time with us, we've been walking through Mark's Gospel, and then we are in Mark chapter 8. Uh, you can follow along with us in the Word of God if you have a copy of it. I think some of the scriptures will be up on the screen if you don't, uh, as we make our way through Mark chapter 8. Where we left off is in verse 22. Verse 22. Context, Jesus has just healed the deaf man, and now we encounter another person that is brought to Jesus. Then he came to Bethsaida. Now we've seen Jesus in Bethsaida before. Remember there are three of the disciples whose hometown is Bethsaida. It is Peter, James, and Andrew. Uh, Peter, James, and Andrew are uh, from Bethsaida. Uh, so uh, they, uh, they later moved to Capernaum, but their hometown was in Bethsaida. And Jesus did has done already many, many miracles uh, in Bethsaida. He has given great teaching. He has performed many miracles. Um, but remember, he's at a point where he has closed his ministry to the Gentiles. He is closing out his ministry in Galilee because the Gentiles have rejected him. The, uh, and those in Galilee have rejected him. Uh, he is now making his way toward Jerusalem and toward the cross. But as he begins that journey, he goes to Bethsaida. Uh, then he came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. Now again, there were always people bringing people to Jesus who had needs. They were not so much interested in who Jesus actually was. They were not interested in the message that he preached. They wanted the miracles. They wanted the show. They wanted their problems fixed. They wanted what they could get out of him, not what they could give to him. Does that sound even vaguely familiar to any places and any groups of people or churches you've heard of today? Well, now notice they're bringing this person who had this need, but as we've seen over and over again, they're also telling Jesus what he needs to do and how he needs to handle this problem. We want you to touch him. And so often we go to the Lord Jesus with our problems and our cares and we, we lift them up in prayer and we say, Lord, this is what I want you to do about this and this is how I want you to do it. This is when I want you to do it. Instead of just trusting in who he is, trusting in his nature, his character, his wisdom, his compassion, and trusting that he's going to know what to do, how to do it, when to do it in such a way that doesn't bring happiness to you, but brings glory to him. See, the issue is everyone was concerned about their happiness and their problem and their comfort. They weren't concerned about giving worship and glory to Jesus. So they begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand. What an act of love. What an act of, of compassion. He took the blind man by the hand, and notice, and led him out of town. He went away from the crowds, 
He went away from all the others, took him outside of town where it was just he, the man, his disciples. Why is that? His ministry to this area had been closed. He's turned his back on the area. He has been, he has taught, he has done many miracles. The Pharisees, the scribes, and most of those folks there had rejected him. They only wanted what he could do for them. But they weren't willing to worship and acknowledge him for who he actually was. So his ministry to the multitudes is closed. And now his ministry is, is taking a big turn. And his ministry is no longer to the multitudes. His ministry is to his disciples. He's preparing them for what's about to come through his death, burial, resurrection. And about to entrust them with the most important thing in all of his heart and life, his church. So everything from this point forward is going to be directed toward teaching and training his disciples. So he takes the man out of town. And notice what he's going to do. They said touch him. Well, he's going to touch him, but not the way that they thought. And when he had spit on his eyes. Now you remember the deaf man. The deaf man just before this. Jesus took him aside, put his fingers in his ear, and did what? Spit. What did we say? You remember what that was for? Because this deaf member, he couldn't explain to him what he was doing and why and who he was. But he was saying, this is coming. What's about to happen is coming from within me. Same reason and purpose. Also, there are some who would say, for many who were blind in that day and time, they had the eye diseases called blindness. As a result, their eyelids were fused shut from infection and other things that had caused the blindness. And so in spitting on, on the eyes, he was lubricating to open them up so that whenever he healed the eyes, he could see. So there's probably a spiritual truth here and a physical reality of what Jesus was doing. It didn't require a miracle to pry open the eyelids. And the principle we see over and over and over again, God never does miraculously what can be done just by us. Jesus physically could open the eyelids, but it took the power of the Father in order to bring about the healing of the eyes. So he, put, uh, he spit on his eyes and put his hands on him. So he did lay his hands on him, making that connection to him. And he asked him if he saw anything. Now, do you think Jesus didn't know what he could see? He knows everything, right? He's omniscient. He knows, but he's letting the man bear witness and testimony what he, what's going on. He asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said... I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored 
and saw everyone clearly. Now, isn't that interesting? This is the only time we see a miracle of Jesus done, a, a, a healing done, when there seems to be two stages to the healing. Every other miracle he did, every other healing he did, whether by a touch or a word or however he went about doing it, it was instantaneous and it was total and it was complete. Now, he says, what do you see? He looks around and he says, well, I'm seeing something, but it, it, I see men, but it's, it's just like trees are walking around. So he touched him again. Now he could see clearly. Why did Jesus do this miracle like he did it in two stages? Do you think somehow he was on a power shortage the first time and, and somehow it wasn't a, a total healing of his eyes? Is he somehow slipping a little bit and he's having to regroup or, or why is he doing it in two stages? That's interesting, isn't it? Well, in my study and in my practical experience, I think there are two primary things at work here. You remember my explanation about the deaf man. And whenever I was talking about the man that was deaf that he healed, I told you about my wife, Robin. Okay? For those of you, we have many guests with us today, so for the rest of you, just kind of give me just a couple minutes to explain. My wife, Robin, wonderful lady, she was born pretty blind. Uh, her mother came into contact when she was pregnant with Robin with what's uh, called a toxoplasmosis virus. You get it from like bird feces, cat feces, those kind of things, or anything that they've touched, vegetables or anything like that. So if you go to the grocery store and a bird has you know, done its business on the vegetable and you, even if it's been wiped off, the virus is still there, so you, you eat it and you can get this virus. It's usually primarily dangerous to pregnant women. And, and so her mom came into contact with this virus. The virus went in utero to Robin, who was in her womb, and virtually destroyed both maculas in the eye. She just got a tiny little sliver of macula left. Whenever you see her retinal uh, uh, scan, it's like a red circle, that's the back of your retina. And it looks like someone took an eyedropper of acid and just a little drop of acid on each of her retinas, and that's what it looks like. It ate away the macula. Uh, the doctors don't know how she sees anything with what they see from the scans, but she sees a little, enough to get, get around. Um, but we've been to many doctors to see if anything can be done for her. Been to Medical University Eye Institute. We've been to Duke University, to the Eye Institute there. We've been all over, okay, uh, and to see if anything can be done. And all the doctors have told us the same thing. Even if they could give her brand new eyeballs, even if they can give her complete new eyeballs, which they can't, but if they were possible to do that, and they put new eyeballs in her eyes, she still would not be able to see any better because for all of her life since she was born, her brain has been used to translating the information the eye sends to the brain a certain way. So, if it begins sending even better information to her brain, the brain won't know how to interpret that information. Which, she's had one surgery, they assured us it would be helpful to her. 
Uh, we went to four different doctors before we had the surgery. Um, they said, yeah, this is going to help her. And so actually physically, her eye at this point is sending better information to her brain than it's ever sent, but she sees worse because the brain had been interpreting the data a certain way, and when it started sending new information a different way, the brain hasn't figured out how to interpret that information. Okay? So, when it comes to your sight, it's not just the issue of the eyes, it's an issue of the brain. So, whenever we talked to the doctor that the primary explained that to us, which was at Duke University, he pulled out his Bible, and he says, let me tell you how the Bible explains this. And he read this passage. And he says, he says, I've heard preachers preach this passage all the time, and he says, none of them ever got it right. He says, let me explain the passage to you. The first touch healed the eyeball. It healed whatever the eye disease was. Now the eye is sending good information to the brain, which the man had never had. So he saw, but could not interpret what he was seeing because the brain hadn't figured that out. The second touch, he says, was to heal the mind, the brain, and what was needed to interpret the data from the healed eyes the right way. So did you know, biology can be an important lesson to learn, okay? There's a point for that in school, all right? So, so you learned something this morning. So I think physically that is the explanation. That is the explanation for why the two touch. But I do think there is a spiritual component at work as well. There is a spiritual lesson to be learned through the second touch. Notice verse 25. Then he put his hands on him again, he made him to look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into town nor tell anyone in the town. Why? So I don't want you to tell anybody about this. Why? Number one, his ministry to the multitudes is over. He's closed the door. Number two, the message he won't shared is not yet complete. Because the message Jesus wants His people to go share is the message of the gospel. Our mission is to share the gospel, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That there is only forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life through Jesus and what He's accomplished on our behalf. That message is not complete. That is coming, but it's not finished yet. So he says, go tell no one about this. Then we come to verse 27. Now, I'm going to pull these passages together and show you what they're all about. Verse 27. Now, Jesus and his disciples went out of the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, and by the way, Rob and I, when we went to Israel, actually stood in the place where this conversation takes place. I had some pictures. Robin was not up to being able to help me get the pictures together. She's the one who does that for me. She was not able to get those together before she's uh, recovering from knee replacement surgery. 
uh, but uh, it was an awesome experience to stand in that place. And by the way, there's something that's also said in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel about this place that everybody I've ever heard share about what it means is wrong. Okay? Until you actually see the place. When you see the place, you'll understand it. I'll give you that later. All right. So he goes to Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? Those of you with the uh, uh, motorcyclist ministry, whenever you go and you're, you're encountering people, um, you can ask, who do you think Jesus is? And it's very interesting, the answers you get when you ask people that question. Even in our churches, and even among Christians. Because, as we've said before, so many, many people have created an image of Jesus in their own minds. A Jesus they want Jesus to be. A Jesus they're comfortable with. Uh, I, I, usually a Jesus that doesn't expect any real change out of us. That just kind of takes us as we are and allows us to continue in our sin, or continue just living our life the way we want to. And so we pick and choose certain little verses of Scripture, and we say, well, this is who Jesus is, but I want you to know it's what the whole of the word from Genesis to Revelation says about Jesus, that is who Jesus is. So Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? So they answered, uh, some say John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and, and others one of the prophets. It's interesting. These people that, that are coming up with these answers are, are believing in the supernatural because all the people they're referring to are dead. So they're saying, we believe that God can bring people back from the dead, and, and either John the Baptist or or Jeremiah, or Elijah, or one of the prophets, Isaiah, he's brought somebody back, and this is who he is. They come up with all these fanciful ideas and won't accept the obvious truth that's staring them in the face of who he is. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? I want to remind you, it's so easy for us to think about what everybody else is doing and how everybody else is living and what everybody else is saying. And it's so easy for us to figure out the flaws in everybody else around us. But I want to remind you about something. When you stand before God, and you will one day, You'll either stand at the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment. When you stand before Christ one day, He's not going to ask you what anyone else believed. He's not going to ask you about what anyone else has done. He's not going to ask you about the preacher that fell. He's not going to ask you about the people in the church that hurt you and disappointed you. He's not going to ask you about any of that. He's going to ask you, 
who do you say that I am and what have you done about what I've done for you? You. Nobody else. He's not going to ask you about mama, daddy, grandmama, granddaddy. He's not going to ask you about your kids or your grandkids. He will ask you about you. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered and says, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Now I want to read Matthew's account. This is the one you're probably familiar with at Caesarea Philippi. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Matthew writes about the same account. Now remember, who is Mark getting his information from? He's getting his information from Peter. Peter has adopted Mark as his adopted son of the faith. Uh, he refers to Mark as his son in the faith um, uh, in his epistles. He's getting the information from Peter. So Peter says, you're the Christ. But notice what Matthew says. Then Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi and asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, and then he identifies himself, the Son of Man am? Now he says the Son of Jesus identifies himself, and he says, I'm the Son of Man. Why? That was Jesus' favorite way of, of saying who he was, the Son of Man. By saying the Son of Man, he is emphasizing his humanity. His humanity. I'm the Son of Man. I have come as one of you. All right? So he's straight, uh, stressing he is human. He is a man. Who do they say I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And uh, he said to them, but who do you say I am? Now, by the way, that just sounds like a simple little sentence. Who do you say? Now, he says, first he says, but ask everybody else. Who does everybody else say that I, the Son of Man, am? As other men... What do other men say about the one who's come as the Son of Man? Now, the Son of Man is used in Jeremiah as a reference to the Messiah. That's the title. It stresses his humanity, but it's also stressing Messiah. Because Matthew, in his writing, is writing primarily to the Jews to teach the Jews, to emphasize to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king of the Jews. So Matthew records. Jesus says, who do I, the Son of Man, who do people say I, the Son of Man, am? Then he says, who do you say, does he say Son of Man? Who do you say I am? Well, that sounds interesting to me. I remember something else about a phrase, I am. I am. I am. What, what, do you remember something about I am? Yeah. And you go back to Moses. And he's before the burning bush. And, and God tells Moses to go talk to Pharaoh, to let the people go. And he says, when I go, who shall I say has sent me? And he said, tell them, I am that I am. Yahweh. I am that I am. 
So now he's emphasized son of man, Messiah, and then in his response to them, he's saying, I am Yahweh. Who do you say I am? He's the God of all eternity. That's fascinating to me. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the anointed of God, the Messiah of God, the one sent by God, the Son of the living God. That's his divinity. So in his first question, he asked and then responds as the Son of Man, and now he responds as God. He's God in the flesh. Just in how he asks a question, he's teaching deep theology. And so we, we just read past it and miss it. The Son of the living God. And he answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood, ah, just being human, has not revealed this to you, but God, my Father who is in heaven. The only way any person will ever come to know who Jesus really is is if God opens His spiritual ears to hear and His eyes to see and His heart, His mind to understand. Well, it's kind of interesting to me. He's just healed the deaf man. He's healed the blind man. And He's healed the mind. Mmm, think that's just coincidental? What's he teaching us? In order to know truth, to see Jesus for who he is, it has to be God who opens our spiritual deaf ears, who opens our blind spiritual eyes, who opens our heart, which in the Scripture, the heart and the mind, they're the same, to open our mind, our heart, to be able to receive and understand. God has revealed this. There's so much more I want to go back. I can't get into that. All right. All right. When he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, I mean, we have created our own, in our own mind who we think Jesus is. There's so all the word of God points to Jesus. I, let me just choose one passage that I like. I want to remind you because I want to ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? I mean, seriously, who do you say He is? Colossians one, verse thirteen and following. He, referring to Jesus, has delivered us from the power of darkness, blindness, and sinfulness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. He reigns and rules over us in love. In whom we have redemption bought back from death, hell, and the grave. Redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins. Our debt before God is canceled. He is the image of the invisible God. He is all that God is, because He's God. The firstborn over all creation. The firstborn is the one who receives the inheritance. 
All things were made by Him, for Him, through Him. He is the inheritor of all things. Good news about that is, too, for us, since He inherits, He's made us a joint heir. We get everything He's got. What's He got? Everything. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, those are the demonic realm. All things were created through Him and for Him. Remember, who stepped out into darkness and said, let there be light? Who said, let there be this? Who said, we say, God, in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who actually spoke creation into being? Jesus. All things were made through Him and by Him. It was the Son who spoke all things into being. He is before all things. And in Him, all things consist. He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He was the first one. Saying He's the first one means there's going to be others. It's us. That, why, why has He done? Why did He bring creation into being? Why has He given uh, redemption? the forgiveness? Why has He done it? Because He just thinks we're so wonderful. No. No. It's Did you know even your salvation is not about you? Get over yourself. I mean, seriously. It's not, even, it's not about you. That in all things, He may have the preeminence. It's all about Him. Putting the greatness of who He is on display. For it pleased the Father that in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, the fullness of God. And by Him, to reconcile all things to Himself. Bring everything that's His to Himself. By Him, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, having made peace, peace with God, then peace with one another, having made peace through the blood of His cross. That's who He is. Mark 8, 31. Now what does He do? He's turning, he's teaching his disciples. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Well, that doesn't compute. It doesn't compute. Peter's just said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're, 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 you're the Messiah. Messiah is the one that God sends to kick out our oppressors, to overcome the Romans, to recreate the political system of the earth so that now the Israelites, the children of Israel, the Jews, now we rule on the earth. That's who Messiah is. He is this political military leader who's going to come and establish this kingdom where we're in control now. And now he tells them, the Son of Man, the one that he just said that he is, must suffer many things. 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. They have seen that. But then there's this. And be killed. Killed. And the disciples are saying, what in the world is he talking about? That doesn't compute with what we've always believed about the Son of Man, the, the Messiah. And after three days, rise again. He spoke this word openly. He's told him. He's just laid out what's going to happen. He's laid out why he's here. Then Peter took him aside and says, Lord, we're with you. Go for it. That's what you say. Because after all, Jesus has just told him he's heard the word of the Father. He said, flesh and blood hasn't given this to you. You're hearing from God. So Peter's thinking, I'm hearing from God. Well, let me tell you what I think God is saying to you. Y'all wouldn't do that, would you? You've never been to anyone and say, Brother John, you know, I was thinking about you the other day, and you know, you've been doing some stuff, but let me tell you, this is the message God gave me to give to you. God's told me to tell you, you really need to be doing this. Y'all never done that, have you? If you have, I want you to know you're lying. God's not told you to tell anybody to do anything. God has spoken to us through His Word. And that's it. His Word is the final authority. All right. So Peter's still in this mode. Since God's talking to me, let me tell you what I think God's saying. So he, he, he does what? He spoke and began to rebuke him. He's saying, Lord, Jesus, that's not... No, 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 you misunderstand. Uh, God has said Messiah is going to reign and rule. You're not, you're not going to die. You're not going to suffer. You're going to cause our enemies to suffer, but you're not going to suffer. And when he turned around and looked at his disciples, because remember, he's teaching the disciples. That's where his ministry is now. He rebuked Peter, saying, and he just told him, you've heard from God, get behind me. He said, man, I've heard something like this before. Where have I heard that from? Yeah, I know who's talking now. Satan. Get behind me, Satan. For Now notice... For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. What is he saying? You're not seeking the things of God. You're not setting your heart on the things of God. You're thinking about what you want. What you want. You're thinking more about men and what men want, what men say than what God desires and what God has said. You see, it's real easy for us to jump on Peter, but there's a lot of him in us. We could walk through tons of Scripture, for, but in our prayers, we're to seek the kingdom, not what we want. James says, you ask but don't receive because you ask amiss seeking to satisfy your own desires. 
How much of our prayer focuses on when we pray what we want versus focusing on Him, who He is, and what He wants? How much is it us praying, telling Him what He ought to do versus worshiping Him in prayer for who He is and seeking to align our heart and our will with His will. We're trying to convince Him to do our will when in what the whole point of prayer is, is to align us with Him. So He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are mindful of the things of God, are not the things of God, but the things of men. And I'm going to tell you the very next thing that's going to happen. Brings it all together. But let me just sum it up by saying this. He's taking his disciples. And he's saying, you have heard. You have heard. I've taught. You have seen my power demonstrated. But you're just like the blind man. It still seems out of focus to you. You're not seeing clearly. If you go back and read just before this, remember when they're on the, the water there and they were arguing about the bread? Because he's fed the, the he's fed the the four thousand, collected seven baskets that remain. They go across. They only have one loaf of bread now, where they did have seven big bread. And they're arguing about the bread, and who should have brought it, and all those kind of things. Jesus says, "You're arguing." He says, "Do you still not understand? Do you still not see? Do you still not hear?" That's what he says. Do you still not see? Do you still not hear? Do you still not understand? And guess what the next thing he does is? He heals a deaf man. He heals a blind man. And then he asks them, who am I? He's teaching them. You've heard. You've seen. But you still don't quite get who I am and why I'm here. So he says, let me spell it out for you. I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. I'm going to suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and scribes. I'm going to be killed. And I'm going to rise from the dead. And guess what? You can't get any plainer than that. You just can't. That's it. And so then what's the response? They still don't get it. It's still, I see men, but like trees walking. It's Jesus. I see Jesus, but it's not like what I was expecting. So I can't see what you're saying. 
Because what's lacking in them? What's lacking? Remember, Jesus told Peter when he declared who he actually was, when he got the truth, flesh and blood hasn't revealed it to you. It's not about what you've heard or seen about it on a human level. He says, my Father in heaven, what's the thing that's going to finally clear it up for them? Because even after the cross, remember? Even after the cross, they still don't get it. When the Jesus actually, they're in hiding. They're afraid. They still don't get it. Even after the resurrection. Even after the resurrection. And they've seen Him now several times. Peter says, I'm going back to fishing. He still doesn't get it. Still. And the rest of the time, yeah, we're going to go back with you. Still doesn't get it. What's the thing that is going to heal the spiritual ears? The spiritual eyesight. What's good? The mind. What's going to bring it together for them? Stay in Jerusalem, he says, until you've received the Holy Spirit. He'll give you the power that you need to be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The Holy Spirit. He's just dealing with them now where they are. But He knows some greats coming that they need. Guess what, folks? There's no excuse for any of us not to be able to hear and not be able to see who Jesus is. Because it is the Holy Spirit of God who takes the message of the Gospel that someone shares with us. Could be a preacher. Could be your mama and your daddy. Grandma grand grandpa. Could be someone who rides a motorcycle. He's going to put someone in your life who's going to share the message of the gospel. As I said, man, the Bible's just so hard to understand. Yeah, until the Holy Spirit takes that message of the gospel and makes it alive, gives you understanding. And then it's more than just words on a page or words in a track. God speaking to you through His Word, helping you to understand you're a sinner. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And there's nothing we can do to fix that. No amount of good works, no amount of going to church, no amount of giving your money, none of that can get rid of your sin. And if that's all there was, we'd all be hopeless. But we're not. Because what we couldn't do, God has done for us. The Father sent His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus, into this world who lived the life we could not live. He lived the life without sin. Not a sinful action, not a sinful word, not a sinful thought. He perfectly kept the law that He Himself gave. Then He went to a cross. And on that cross, God the Father took all of your sin and my sin and the sin of the whole world and placed it into His sinless Son. He bore our sin. He then received the fullness of the wrath of the Father 
the eternal wrath that we should have received. Christ on the cross paid the price for all of our sin. In full, satisfied the holiness and the justice of God. Died in our place, shed his sinless blood on our behalf. Was buried. And then to prove to us that the Father accepted the price that he paid, he raised his son from the dead. And he's alive right now. And if the Holy Spirit has given you the ability that only He can give you to understand that truth, not just the knowledge of it, but your need for it, to bring you to a place of repentance of sin and turning away from sin. I don't want to keep living this way anymore. Placing your faith in, in Jesus that when He died on Calvary's cross, He did so for you. Not just for the whole world. For you. He was buried for you. And He rose from the dead for you to defeat death forever. And you believed that so strongly by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not just what you can do, but what the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to do. You then surrender all that you are to Him. That God, from now on, my life doesn't belong to me, it's yours. You do with me what you will. In that moment, all your sin is forgiven. That's good news, amen? All your sin is forgiven. No more. You don't, you don't bear it anymore. He bore it for you. Then he takes his Holy Spirit, the one that helps you to believe and understand all that. And then He comes to live within you. And He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll be with you always. And He's living the very life of Christ in you and through you from that point forward. One day we'll go be with Him in His presence forever. So let me ask you a question. Who do you say that Jesus is? He's meant everything the Bible says. But you know what's the most important to me? Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my Lord. That's who He is. That's who He is. All because of that wonderful day when in grace, God reached down and saved me. Do you know beyond any shadow of a doubt he saved you. If you don't, you can be assured of that right now. Repent, believe, surrender.